What's happening, weirdos? This and every episode of this podcast is brought to us by our friends at CW Hemp, Charlotte's Web Hemp Oil. Get yourself some CBD Calm Gummies. We all could use some Calm Gummies. Go to charlottesweb.com slash weird and use promo code Keep it crispy, 19 for 10% off. This is Billy Eichner. I've been trying literally for years to get Billy to come on the podcast. I'm so glad we finally got to sit down over Zoom. Uh, if there's any like weirdness, it's because the Zoom dropped a few times. Those have been edited out, but uh, you might notice some like strange shifts in energy if you're sensitive to that sort of thing. Uh, for those of you new to this, I, I think everybody by this point knows I don't do traditional ads for this podcast, but our show is sponsored by things that I truly love and truly use and enjoy every single day. One of them is Living Libations skin products. I am so careful and mindful about what I put in my body. I have been for years, but I realized not that long ago that I wasn't being very careful about what I put on my body. In, I was like, is it organic? Is it natural? Do I recognize the ingredients? But I'd put like shaving cream or face washes that I thought were fancy because they had French names, but they were actually made with chemicals that of course we know have been linked to disease and toxicity and just were never intended for humans. So I wanted to eat food where I recognize the ingredients and I wanted my skincare to be the same. So I was so happy when I discovered living libations. I always start before I shave. I use their ginger exfoliating scrub. Forget the fact that it's natural and you'll recognize what's in it. It is the best exfoliating scrub I have found. It is so much more intense. It's not some like middle of the road, new age sort of alternative. It is the most intense, effective exfoliating scrub I've ever found. And I love it. it makes my skin feel fantastic. You do that before you shave, you're gonna have a 9,000 times better shave, I promise. Speaking of shaving, I use their Zen Shave instead of uh, weird anonymous blue gel from a can that you get at a 7-Eleven. I use Zen Shave, which is a clean and natural uh, moisturizing shaving cream, which I love. And at night, I use their Best Skin Ever Moisturizer, which smells great, makes your skin feel great, and it's a wonderful thing to do before bed. Whatever your skin needs, though, I promise you Living Libations has a premium, high-end, natural, and wonderful product to replace the random chemical concoction nightmare that you are buying at some strange uh, pharmacy. Get it from the earth, get it from a good place, get it from Living Libations. Go to livinglibations.com and use promo code WEIRD for 20% off. They have baby products. We got Lee on their baby products. Some really, really great stuff. So check it out or get some of the products that I enjoy. Uh, Speaking of things that I put in my body for the past couple months now, I've been enjoying Tahitian Noni juice. This is something I got turned on to by my friend David and his company, Noni New Age. Uh, Tahitian Noni for thousands of years has been used as a natural health remedy, but now there's scientific data They have a peer-reviewed and double-blind trial study with placebo that shows a four-ounce shot of Tahitian noni juice uh, twice a day. So it's basically just one little gulp twice a day. Increases your natural killer, that's your NK cell count, by 30%, which is incredible. A 30% increase in your NK cells, and NK cells are directly responsible for keeping your immune system Uh, powerful and functioning optimally. So it's not just uh, folklore or tribal knowledge anymore. It's been proven in the lab. It's packed with powerful antioxidants. It also tastes good, I think. It tastes a little bit like pomegranate juice. It's got some blue 
blueberry juice in there to sweeten it. Key minerals, uh, key vitamins, 275 nutrients and phytonutrients and antioxidants. I take it in conjunction with their supplement Cell Defense. Cell Defense has been clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation. Normally, a bottle of Tahitian noni juice, a one liter bottle, and a bottle of Cell Defense would go for $100, but you can now get both for $40 and show your support of this podcast. Go to noninewage.com slash weird40 and get some of that goodness in you. I love doing the shot. I love knowing I'm doing something good and healthy and right for my body to help it uh, behave at its peak performance level. Uh, that's it, guys. We're going to enjoy Billy Eichner now. Get some hemp. Get some living libations. Get some Tahitian Jew. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the incredible Billy Eichner. I get into it. Billy! Hi. How are you? <laughs> good, man. How's it going? Good. Sorry I'm a few minutes late. That's all good. Is it okay? We'll just we're recording now if that's all right. Yeah, let's hello. I'm ready to go. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Are you drinking booch? No, this is like a really sad like energy drink. Oh no. Are you you're not a a, a food snob? I don't I wasn't assuming that you were, but if you're drinking a bright green fuzzy fizzy. I'm, I'm not a food snob, strangely enough. I mean, I I will go and eat good food if someone tells me where to go. I like going out to eat. Um, but you're not like, a, I won't drink that? <laughs> You'll drink a monster? Oh, I'll, I, I would definitely drink a monster. Yeah. I mean, under, not, 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 not at home. This is like a pre this is like a pre workout situation. But, uh, uh, but, oh, yeah. If I'm like out, I'm like trash. I'm trash. I'm really? Like, yeah, I'm like gay trash. Like you're, like, you're like Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll's not gay, but Nick Kroll is fed and stylish, and he'll eat a Wendy's hamburger. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't give a shit. And I lost you, didn't I? And you're gone. The podcast stays. Hey guys, hey. I'm so sorry. It's all good, man. I have some issues, some Zoom issues. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen again. Uh, it's all good. If it does, we'll we'll figure it out. It's all fine. All right, sorry about that. You were saying Nick Kroll is also disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Nick Kroll is human garbage. Uh, in terms of, I, I don't even mean that obviously, but like he will, uh, you know, eat a Wendy's soft serve like a lot of people. But I just, it just bothers me that he's he's fit, he's attractive, he fits in regular people clothes, and I, I feel like <laughs> I, I can't do that. Um, right. I but, don't eat. I'm I'm a very rare fast food person. So yeah. I don't mean that I eat garbage. I do try to eat healthy with the occasional treat. But I am also not opposed to like a vodka Red Bull occasionally. Yeah. You know, that's not my go to. But. but that's like a functional like back in the day, like don't pass out drink. Isn't that like it's like a. It keeps you going sort of thing. Yeah. If, if you're looking for that sort of night, <laughs> it, will, it will keep you going without resorting to illegal substances. That's right. I'm confused uh, about, because you're a New Yorker. And when I moved to New York, there's sort of like, it's LA has this too. There's a lot of different cultures overlapping. Yeah. Like LA, we love kale. 
And then there's also In-N-Out burgers and fat burgers. And, and there's just this whole other. Right. And when I w- moved to New York, the New York that I knew being from Boston, I was like, this is glamour. This is, you know, the Met Gala. This is premieres. <laughs> I knew about the, the Met Gala very young. And, but then also it's like the KFC Papa Gino's duel yeah. uh, has a line out the door. Like, and you growing up there, I can't imagine if there was a McDonald's in my neighborhood, were you a big fast food kid? Oh yeah. As a, I was a fat kid. I was, um, Oh, you were? Yeah. I was like, technically, I, I remember my doctor telling me technically I'm morbidly obese. Like Nancy Pelosi called Trump. That's what my pediatrician called me oh, um, no. when I was a kid. Yeah, I had a really evil pediatrician. Who, <laughs> I don't know why my parent, my parents were wonderful. A lot of my friends went to this pediatrician. He's dead now a long time. His name was Dr. Dreyfus. Um, and he was very mean. He was cold. He wasn't like a nice, friendly pediatrician. I don't know why he was a pediatrician, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a vivid memory, and thankfully this was not traumatizing for me for some reason. I think I just laughed it off the way I still laugh things off. But like at one point, he I remember vividly he grabbed onto my fat roll and like was like, "You see this? You see this? Like this is this is not good." Right? Oh my god! Something I that effect. I would have cried. Did it affect you? I remember, I, I remember that moment, and then I remember once he wasn't in the office, and the nurse or his assistant had left my file sitting there, and oh, so I looked at my file, and it said oh, Obi, like you know, Billy. So I was like, wow, I'm obese. I just kind of feel like I'm a fat kid who won't be fat later. And then that's kind of exactly what happened. Did people used to tell you that you would stretch out? I used to get that all the time because I was also a soft, doughy boy. And people were like, don't worry, you'll you'll stretch out. That was the language. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I did. I mean, I was always tall, but then I really shot up in high school. And also, I don't know. So as a kid, oh, yeah, I ate all the shit as a kid. All of it. I feel like that's got to be traumatic. I, I have more... I've been like, I, I'm 41 years old now and I'm still going through like weird food trauma memories. Like if you and I wanted to have like a four hour dinner, all we, for me, all you'd have to do is ask me about weird memories I have regarding food or feeling like I was fat. And yeah. one that comes to mind was I, I met this kid at the beach. I must've been like eight, nine, ten. I don't know. Uh-huh. And w- we had a great time. And it was like one of those wonderful, one of the last random social you just meet someone at the beach and you just hang out and you're building sandcastles and having fun later you get too cool and too old and too discerning for that and this is probably why and then when we met his weird smoking uh gross armed parents i remember their arms being gross they went who's the fat kid and i was just like who does that like i still wow. someone grabbed my fat roll i mean we're yeah. laughing now is this Forgive me for the obvious question, but in my case, it's true. Did you get your sense of humor during that time when you felt sort of awkward in your body? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't, (laughs) I, I don't, I don't, I never felt that bad about it. A lot of my friends at that time were kind of fat. Like not everyone was, but we were like, 
chubby Jewish kids growing up in Queens with our like Jewish parents, like stuffing us with bread and cheese doodles and fast food. I, I, so I, I don't know. I, I, I it didn't concern me. Um, I, I, it just didn't. I wonder now because then what happened was I remember specifically a moment in high school where you're obviously a bit older and your hormones are going and all of that. And I was thinking about going to college. And at some point I remembered, I remember now I started to care about my personal aesthetic in general. I guess this happens (laughs) with kids. So it's like, I almost made a conscious choice. It's like, I'm getting older. I'm going to want to have sex. I'm going to like come out in college and I want to look a certain way. And I, started to like concentrate on what I was eating more. This is when I started like putting gel in my hair. I mean, I started thinking about what I was wearing. The first two years of high school, I could show you photos. I don't have one readily available. My, I never got my hair cut. I had the biggest (laughs) Jewish fro as they call it. um, uh, That you could imagine. I mean, if you saw pictures of me, it is the craziest hair. And like, I went to a really nerdy high school. It's a great school, but it's like very academically focused. So no one was thinking about sex, gay or straight, very few people. Mm. It wasn't like a normal high school. And so I think because of that, it didn't matter what I looked like until all of a sudden it did. Like one day it was like, okay, I want to look a different way. Like around puberty or something? Yeah, I remember this. I, I remember... My senior year of high school, I looked very different already than my sophomore year of high school. Mm. Um, because I think I, that that's like a boy. I, I don't want to say that girls don't do that, but I always remember in my yearbook, if you look at the freshman girls, they got the memo earlier. They're, they, they're yeah about their clothes and their appearance. I know I'm painting with a broad brush. This was just my school. Right. And the boys look like fucking, they look like they were hit by an ice cream truck and some of the accoutrements stuck to them. And then by senior year, yeah. there was some effort. And that's what happened to you. And I wonder too, maybe subconsciously, I never thought about this before. I mean, I kind of always in my head knew I was gay years before I came out the way all gay kids do. Mm. Um, so I wonder if... You know, and I had like a girlfriend in junior high school on and off because that's just what you do or try to do. Or at least, by the way, this is the early 90s. Now some kids come out in like fourth grade, but um, that was not happening. Um, And I wonder if because I wasn't really, really actively wanting girls to find me attractive because I didn't really care. Right. Maybe I didn't care until being gay became more of a reality and I knew that in college I just knew I was going to come out and that's when I started to care about how I looked I guess this is going to sound like a joke but because I went to a religious college Mm -hmm. and and I I mean religious not in the way that Holy Cross is religious I mean like there was a declaration of faith and people were taking it seriously Tish Tish (laughs) I'm just kidding <laughs> Wait, help me learn what Tish means. Does it just mean what it sounds like? What does oh, that mean? No, Tish is like the NYU school of the art. Oh, no. You said you went to a religious college, so I was hilarious. Thinking. I thought you were making a sound effect, like sort of something I should know. Oh no! Although it could hilarious. be that. No, it's just a Jewish last name of someone who sponsored <laughs> like a uh, performing arts school at NYU. Anyway, hilarious. 
I just knew there were so few people having sex. Like we just weren't having sex. Right. At least in my group, you saw less interest in looking hot. Like I didn't get some people, because what are you going to do about it? So you're a young man and you're like, well, you tell me if I'm wrong, but like you didn't necessarily get the sense that there were viable other options for relationships. So you're like, I'm going to grow my hair out. Like that was me in college. (laughs) Yeah. I just didn't care. It wasn't even a conscious choice to grow it out. It wasn't like a political statement, like, I don't care about haircuts. Right. It, it was just- You I'm really really, didn't. I'm not thinking about it. Like, so until someone pointed it out to me, like, uh, might be time to cut your hair. I was like, oh, oh yeah, okay, I guess. And and your parents weren't the kind of parents that would insist that you got your hair cut? No, no. <laughs> they were like very- support it well i don't know they were very lovely uh just sweet people very sweet people i grew up in new york city so i was very lucky in that way i mean if you're gonna be a gay kid in the 90s grow up in new york city which is um not like every set of parents in new york city is so gay friendly or liberal necessarily but chances are they they are more than the average person and my parents certainly were so I think they were just happy that I was like a big nerd and like yeah. cared about school and wasn't trouble, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They just kind of let me do my thing. That's one of the interesting things about my time in New York. I Obviously, I visited a lot being from the East Coast, but then when I lived there for seven years, it always struck me as a strange phenomenon. It kind of goes both ways. One, of course, people are more tolerant to gay people. There's like gay neighborhoods that you walk through right. to get to your grocery store. It's not like an isolated, right? It's not like Fire Island. It's like right. it's it's baked into the West Village. It's baked yep. into different areas. It's yep. baked into Chelsea and whatever. And then also the same thing with racial tolerance. Of course, mm-hmm. you don't believe that all fill in the race here do this behavior here because you actually know dozens and dozens of them because you live amongst them. Yes. Then you also get this other, it's kind of like how Boston has MIT, but it also has the weirdest, most backwards, almost like redneck type people. (laughs) Yes. Yes. In New York, you, like you're saying, you would have, you would suspect people to be gay friendly because there's just every type of people. But then I have to think, especially in the nineties, there were families that, and and people that you knew. Like, I don't feel good or safe being gay in front of you or letting you know, right? I mean, like, you'd think everyone would be peachy keen, but no. Right. Um, I, 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 was, I was very lucky in this way. Um, I, I didn't know anyone who I cared about, at least, who I thought, oh, this person's going to have a real problem when I come out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just lucky, I That's guess, great. you know, so I don't know. Or in my head, I thought maybe if someone does have a problem, fuck it, like, fuck them. Like, I don't, I don't care. You know, like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I all, I knew to be that confident in that way. Um, but I think some, I think a lot of it was my parents. I knew my parents specifically would not have a problem with it. And so mm-hmm. once you have that, that's like You're a good. gift because who that's who you're relying on at that point in your life. And everyone, no one else really matters. Once you get that unconditional love, it's sort of, it bakes yes. into you or hopefully exactly. it bakes. Into you. Yes. yes. There's also something, again, I'm going to keep presuming and, and I've been wrong a couple of times and that's okay. 
But there's something flowy about New York, meaning there's so much life and so many people that I feel like it would give you this attitude. Like what I'm saying is, let's take you to a small town in, in the Midwest, 15 people in your class or whatever, or 30, whatever. It means so much more what they think of you. You're surrounded by life itself. Like yeah. the most exciting, vibrant, living place filled with every type of human possibility. Yeah. I have to think that that would rub off on you. And maybe even make you think you could be a comedian. I wonder if that had an impact. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I took, um, I grew up in Queens and I went to a high school in Manhattan. It was a public school, but it was, it's, it's Stuyvesant. It's like a famous high school. You have to like take a test to get in. I guess they would call like a magnet school now. It's, it's free, but you have to get a, they get, you take like an SAT style test. And if you get a certain score, you can go. Okay. But I lived in Queens and it was all the way downtown Manhattan and Battery Park. But it's like the kind of school where if you get in, you go, right? Yeah. And so I took the subway to high school every day back and forth, an hour and 15 minutes each way. Whoa. And so, and, and even before that, I always loved Manhattan. We lived like, you know, 20 minutes-ish out of midtown Manhattan. And so... Yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, you just grow up surrounded by diversity. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that there aren't racists somewhere in there, like secret racists or overt <laughs> racism. But at the very least, you're all tolerating each other. Like even if That's even right. if you don't secretly like like gay people or, or, or Jews or black people or whatever it might be, it's not like there aren't racists in New York City, Lord knows. But at least on the surface there is more peace than you would expect considering right. how many different types of people. And then you throw in the tourists and people from all over the world that you're constantly negotiating also on the streets. Yes. And so it really is a privilege. Whenever I hear people say, I hear a lot of people say, Oh my God, you grew up in New York city. That must be so weird. I'm never going to, I would never want my kids to grow up in New York. But people like, love saying that to people. I know. I know people it's love so weird. that. Why like, do they feel okay saying you would never say you're from Omaha? I could never live in like, but with if it's Manhattan, I guess it's cool enough that you'd be like, I could never be there. Well, it's like, no, I want my kids to have space, and I'm like, okay, well, you'll grow up. You, you're going to raise a very racist child who has space. Like that's what you're going to raise. Like he'll have space, and he'll also hate everyone who isn't like a white straight person. So there is something about being forced into that community. Yeah. Keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just like, I think that's such a big problem in our country and in our world is that people are so isolated and they're scared and they scapegoat people that they don't know. And uh, one thing about growing up in New York city is that again, you're thrown into that mix immediately. And It, there are real advantages to that around being gay and just around being a compassionate a human human and, and, right. and then I went to um you know I went to Northwestern uh, for college right outside of Chicago and you know Chicago also a big city but more segregated than New York City yeah. mm-hmm. and I rem- I just vividly recall even in my first few weeks there, because I had never, other than a trip here and there with my parents, you know, I, I never got out of New York a ton um, for any significant amount of time. And I remember looking around and just seeing how segregated it was, honestly. 
you know, I have the same experience. I moved from New York to, I'm sorry. I, w- I moved from Boston to Chicago. Oh, and I yeah. was like, what is going on? People would yes. talk about the South side, like it was another country yes. and the North side. And I lived on the North side and I worked on the South side and all my friends, I worked at Bennigan's. I had all these black friends mm-hmm. and never the two would meet. It's like, do you exactly. guys ever go to Wrigleyville? What the fuck are you talking about? It was yeah. crazy. A hundred percent. I had that same experience. And I remember like, it was shocking to me. And then that's the first time in my life I realized like, oh, what I grew up with is the weird thing. That's right. the rare thing that my perspective is totally skewed from growing up around a little bit of everything. That's right. You know? And that this was more representative of the country and of the world. And that is when my perspective really shifted. That's right. Uh, and that was the first time. And by the way, again, that's Chicago or right outside of Chicago and like this Big Ten school. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's not like it's a small town. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I, so I went to this Christian college. I got married when I was 22 and then I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. So there was a Petey, a little, little baby boy who was married, which is, by the way, hilarious. If you think of my kind of soft fingers with a wedding ring, people, people... <laughs> Couldn't believe that this yeah. kid who didn't yet know not to wear light colored jeans and whatever, all the, all this stuff. It was a very fun thing. Uh-huh. Uh, walking around being like, this is my wife. And <laughs> I had some, I was always pro gay. Don't get me wrong. Beca- mm-hmm. Not because of my college, but because of my grade school. But I kind of was one of those Christians that was like, but you know, it doesn't th- forgive me, but we were like, but it doesn't make a baby. So it's not, Right. That was sort of the rationale. We were like, "Well, it doesn't." I mean, you're not <laughs> wrong about that. I mean, no, like, that's a fact. <laughs> we keep trying, but it, we just cannot impregnate each other. And trust me, we keep trying. <laughs> I had work. no idea. Yeah. It was all for the breeding. Yeah. Every everything was a trial. But then I would do shows at the duplex. Now, this isn't to say that it turned me from a homophobe right. into a loving person, but I started doing all these mics at the duplex and in, in, in the village and, and with all these uh, gay comedians. And of course I loved them all and got along with it. We were all the, you know, we were comedians first and then we had all this other stuff to get to know. And I was like, that's New York. That was my experience in New York. Not so much uh, as Chicago, although I did do some gay shows in Chicago and that was very, uh, you know, broadened my horizons or whatever. Mm-hmm. But New York was like, nobody was like, do you want to go do, the duplex it's a it's a gay show like no right. it wasn't even that it was like there's a show at the duplex so it's so normalized yes and, and that's what made everything feel so that's so cool. that's so interesting though because i did some i you know i did a little like traditional stand-up right at the beginning um and one of the open mics i used to do is at the duplex too yeah. with poppy uh, but but it's maybe you were there but yeah. uh, but it's interesting because i it's funny, I, I always think about like gay comics having to go be the only gay comic, especially in those days. You know, we're going back 18, 20 years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, gay comics having to be the only gay comic at a very straight, skewing stand-up club. And most stand-up places still to this day, and especially then, are very hetero. Uh, even in the middle of New York City, because the audience itself isn't coming from Manhattan. 
they're usually right. coming from outer boroughs and Connecticut and tourists. So, you know, it's funny, but I never thought about a straight comic going to be like the only straight guy at a more like gay comedy spot. That's- yeah. It was a real beautiful sort of crash. Crash course sounds like it was unpleasant. There was nothing unpleasant about it at all. In fact, the shows that I used to do, I think, I don't know if Simpson Lounge was a gay club, but whatever, there were these shows and the, and the crowds there always used to be, as you would imagine, very progressive, very welcoming and enthusiastic. And I was just like, what is this heaven? It was perfect for me. Yeah. It's funny that you keep mentioning tourists because the last time I was in New York, which was obviously pre-demic, I, we did a lot of Broadway and we went and saw all these great shows. And I'm not just being a, a stereotype enforcer here, but a lot of the men were clearly gay. I was like, this is a gay man. Uh, what a beautiful voice. It, it feels like we're watching a gay man. And then you look around the audience and you're like, these people are not pro-gay. Like, I'm just looking at the haircuts. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> yeah. A lot of these people flew in and they're going to see Broadway. And right. I, and I remember saying to Val, I was just like, don't, can't they put it together? You know, it's like one of these weird things. It's like, don't look. I remember seeing this sermon actually, where the guy was talking about how the church is so anti-gay, but he's like, how many musical directors are we all just pretending not to notice? Which is, believe right. it or not, a real mic drop in the church community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it gave me the chills because I was like, our music director had gay feelings. This, you know, felt, right. we don't know. Right. And I was like, if only they could connect A and B. You just were, your heart was opened and your soul was enlivened by this performance by somebody that the only other interaction you have with them is maybe voting that they can't get married or whatever it might right. be. Not but, to mention the priests. I mean, you know, we don't need to go into that, but like, <laughs> right. I mean, nearly every man that works at a church is like a closeted gay person. Well, th- th- <laughs> this is a uh, Catholic, uh, traditionally a Catholic problem. You froze again. He froze in the middle of the pedophilia. He's gone. Right when we got to, I said, after you disconnected, I'm like, we go into pedophilia, like one of the biggest, <laughs> scariest, trickiest topics. And I you know. cut out and you leave me alone to talk about it. <laughs> was listening. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it's, I don't want to throw and say that there aren't that. When we talk about that problem, we're t- traditionally talking about the Catholic Church, um, which I'm not an expert on. But I'm like, what is going on there? I mean, people yeah. that don't. Is it, do you think it's a channeling or a funneling of like, oh, your sexuality is evil, so it goes into the shadows? Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, especially back in the day, although I think it probably still happens, uh, I think a lot of people who, a lot of men who knew they were gay thought they could escape it or, and or get away from it. Um, or, or, or find a place to hide and yeah. do illegal things and use the church and the priesthood, um, as a disguise. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think, I, you know, I think that's what it is. It could, it could very well be. I remember there was this kid and he wrote this really homophobic, ugly thing in our school newspaper, which I still can't believe they printed it. I mean, somebody put it perfectly and I've mentioned it before. It had a real impact on me. They were like, this is hate speech. Like somebody just wrote hate speech and we printed it. Yeah. But then this gay student that I didn't even know, cause it wasn't at my college. It wasn't like it's better now, 
but it wasn't really like there were a lot of out people. Yeah, of and course. Somebody wrote and he put it so perfectly because in the hate speech article, he was like, if you're gay, become a, 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 a priest or a, a pastor, like become celibate. He's like, that's right. God gave you a choice and it's celibacy. <laughs> right. And I was like, Oh, and the, but I didn't have the words and this very, and a student. So he's an undergrad. He's a young yeah. man wrote, not a fiery, not an angry, not an ugly response, which by rights he totally could have, but he very compassionately wrote and addressed this guy's things. And he said, sexuality is like an appetite. He's like celibacy. And he even used his language. He was like, celibacy is an option for some of God's people, but it's a calling and you need to be called to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for the rest of us, sexuality, when he said it's an appetite, I was like, of course, I, I know it's, what kind of revelation is that for me to be having when I'm like 20 years old? But it was, I sort of was guilty of being like, yeah, I guess if I was gay, I'd just be celibate because I couldn't, the cliche, like I couldn't do it to my mother, although I'm sure my mother would have been fine with it or whatever right. it might have been to, to my friends or the church or God. Mm-hmm. But uh, he just put that to rest for me that day. And it was a really special thing. I, I wish I knew who it was that wrote the retort. It really changed my uh, heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the church or any organized religion to be completely honest. No, Um, you're not alone there. I understand. I'm not alone. It's sort of the, again, I'm not an expert on it, but the pedophilia thing is sort of reason enough to just be like, Oh my God, come on. Yeah. I mean, shut it down. Any, (laughs) it's like any (laughs) other industry that had this much serial pedophilia over the course of thousands of years. Yeah. And people are still, uh, you know, they still, uh, friends of mine, like gay friends. I have gay friends that go to church now. You know, I mean, people grew up with it and it's a ritual and they need something to believe in and they're willing to forgive all the awful shit. Forgive is one thing, but to, to, it's because it keeps happening and there's an attitude, there's a shadow to the whole thing mm-hmm. that keeps somebody just recently was like talking about how abortion was worse than pedophilia because in pedophilia, nobody dies. And I was like, how can we still be saying that this is yeah, like, I mean, yeah. it's insane. So I, I I'm with you, even though I am an apologist for the church and I'm not Catholic, but like I, I see the value in some of the good ones. Um, I, I'm totally with you on this issue. It's 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 heavy and disgusting. Yeah. Obviously, what, I'm, well, what a, what a hot we, take, Pete. I'm glad we touched on it. I've been wanting at some point in the pandemic to talk about pedophilia. <laughs> and here we are. We really we really are making it weird. This I mean <laughs> how much weirder are we gonna get? <laughs> Dude, it's been a while. It's funny that there can be an issue. And it does make my hands sweat a little bit, just kind of even even talking about it publicly. Yeah. Um, you don't have this is a this is a natural segue, I swear. You don't really have that problem. Something I really have always admired about you when I watch Billy on the Street or Difficult People is there's a fearlessness. That sounds like code for I'm I'm like, you're a mean person. I don't think that at all. Right. Obviously, we are of the same species, we're comedians, and I get it. I was watching difficult people just to get ready. I had already watched it, but I was watching it just to get in the, in the Billy Eichner mood. Yes. And I was like rewinding it. I wish you could get the data from Hulu on how many people hit the 15 back 
just to like savor specifically oh, a burn yeah. because I was like, there's comedy can be so tame. It can be so neutered. Mm-hmm. And what you guys did and what you do on both of those shows that I just mentioned is there's a real fearlessness and, and, it, and it can be sort of salacious and exciting again. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering where you learned that and how you maintained it. Cause once you start getting more popular, it might mm-hmm. be tempting to eat the turkey on white bread sandwich and just kind of coast and, right. and become a little bit more like some of the careers you make fun of, like Mario Lopez. That's the one I rewound where you said, <laughs> I want my clown to have a name that's like non-threatening and doesn't offend anybody. Hi, I'm Mario Lopez. <laughs> yeah. I was like, as someone in the business, I know the safe play of staying away from even a joke like that. But you have like a a sharpness to you. Could you talk a little bit about that? And if you were ever like, as the show went into the third season, were you like ever worried? Like, I got to stop making these jokes. Or were you like, this is just what we're doing? Um, well, I'd say the shows, uh, the shows were obviously happening at the same time, at least for a couple of years. Um, Difficult People um, was very much a Julie Klausner creation. And mm. she wrote it all. She created it. She produced it. I, I, would sometimes ad lib and contribute to my own dialogue here and there, but sparingly. And, and Julie and our showrunner, Scott King, at, at some point, uh, they wrote, they wrote difficult people. Julie created it and just invited me to play her best friend. So in terms of the creative on that show, obviously I was very much along for the ride and I loved it, but, uh, you know, I want to like credit Julie for oh, creating glad. that world. Yeah. And establishing that tone. Um, now, Julie and I met on Billy on the Street. We knew each other before that, and we were mutual fans via social media, but we didn't really know each other until Billy on the Street got picked up as a half-hour TV show, and she was one of the first people I called because it was the first time in my life I was going to need collaborators. I couldn't think of all the games and the questions and things that we do. I couldn't do it all on my own. And we could only afford, it was so low budget, especially at the beginning, we could only afford like two or three people for a handful of weeks to sit in a room with me and figure out what the hell the show was going to be. So I called Julie just because I was a fan and I said, Billy on the Street's becoming a TV show and um, will you please come work on it with me? And she did. And she worked on it with me for four of the five years. Mm. Um, and then, so in, so so the shows are a bit separate in that I really helped conceive one, obviously. but. I see. Difficult People was very much Julie's work. Um, to get back to your question, it's funny to me because everyone always says, in terms of Billy on the Street and, and both shows to a certain extent, uh, oh, you're, you know, like what you just said, and it's very complimentary, you know, oh, you're fearless and you're willing to do things, say things, etc. And it's funny, I never, first of all, I'm clearly not fearless as a human being off camera, you know, like we all have things we're scared of. I guess I'm not scared of certain things like going up to people on the street. But again, I think it speaks to something we talked about earlier, which is the fact that I grew up in New York City. So those streets in Chelsea and downtown, we we very rarely go below 42nd, sorry, above 42nd Street. Sometimes we'll go walk around the Upper West Side. But um Mm. I grew up on those streets. Like I said, I went to high school downtown. That's my home. 
So other people think of those streets as, oh, it's New York City and it's intimidating <laughs> and people are mean. And I'm like, what do you mean people are mean? These are my people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, and again, because I grew up having a lot of support among my friends, among my parents, my family, I, I have this confidence. And even 10 years ago, which is when shockingly Billy on the Street became a TV show. 10 mm. years ago this wow. year, you know, there weren't in the past handful of years. Now we have this like whole movement of LGBT comedians and, and openly queer actors and, and trans actors and actresses and, and comedians. But this did not exist 10 years ago on TV the mm. way it does now. I mean, mm. there were a handful of gay people, but no comedians with their own show and especially a show that had such a gay sensibility sort of propelling it, right? It was taking the, usually it was a satellite character on Sex and the City. It's like exactly. you're the, you're you the were best friend. Ensemble, or yeah. you, were, you were a very kind, semi-neutered presence on a sitcom yeah. who may have been openly gay and flamboyant, but was cuddly, right? And, right. and was not the center <laughs> of the story and was not threatening. Yeah. In the way that straight comedians have always been allowed to be threatening and really sort of push the boundaries and make their own views like the center of a show and yeah. fuck off if you don't get me, right? That's right, that's right. And, 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 and one thing that I'm proud of with Billy on the Street is that whether it's your cup of tea or not, it was one of the first shows to really do that. Um, and you're not playing, you are sort of, you're playing Billy on the Street. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're, you're stepping into the fullness of your funny side of yourself. Yeah. You're not, uh, and I, of course I love Borat, but you're not Borat. You're, you're not hiding in like a, yeah, you're, I mean, you're it's, turning the volume up on yourself. It's definitely a character. You know, it's a character that I started doing on stage, but like, so it's a persona that is removed from my real life persona, but you know, it's, it's, um, I well, always interesting. I, I always just thought it was like your stand-up you, meaning it is you, but it is kind of a character. I, again, I, I'm wrong, and I, I hear that. You're, you're yeah, doing I think, really on I the think it is. I think it is a character because it's just not how anyone would behave in real life, obviously. And right. for me, that, that persona um, is very much a satire of my own pop culture obsessions yeah. and opinions and how seriously... That's right. The entertainment industry and my opinions about it, good and bad, from the time I was a very young child. That's right. And this was kind of, this is the result of all of that. And I I wanted to like, I'm making fun of that obsession, right? And, And our cultural obsessions. And the only way to make fun of it you know, if I just walked up to someone and said, Miss, uh, you know, like, you want to talk about the Oscars, maybe if that kind of a thing is important to you or, you know, it, but if, if I did it in a more casual way, then there's no commentary and there's no comedy. So That's it's right. the exaggeration of it that that A is funny and, and sort of gets my point across. So um, you're absolutely right. I hear that. I see that. Yeah. And so but hey, but, you know. I used my own name and I, and like you're saying, I, I didn't do the Sasha Baron Cohen thing where, you know, when he played Bruno, which the very flamboyant gay sort of fashionista character that he had around the same time as when I was first doing my live shows in New York, some, some gay people were offended by Bruno. I think it's hilarious mm. um, uh, because it's so knowing 
Uh, and it just made me laugh. But but again, like Borat, <laughs> Bruno, he would put on a crazy costume and lose himself in it. Right. And I made a conscious choice to not do that because I didn't want people to think the interactions were as fake as my costume or mm. as fake as a fictional name I made for myself. And I thought the strongest way to accomplish that is to just say, hi, I'm Billy Eichner and this is really me because then the whole thing feels real, which it is. You know, right. those interactions are real, but I felt if I'm wearing some silly costume or some playing up a flamboyant persona in terms of what I'm wearing or, you know, makeup or whatever, that all of a sudden it all feels artificial and so much of the show relies on people knowing that it's real. Right. Because it feels like a gag. If you walked up in like an Austin Powers kind of getup, it's a gag. But you run into so people after person after person after person that doesn't seem to understand. Right. What's and, happening? And <laughs> New Yorkers right. are smart. And with all due respect to Sasha Baron Cohen, who I, uh, I don't know him personally. I, I adore him and have for, for years. Um, you know, he went to small towns. And, you know, New Yorkers are yeah. not so naive. So if you go up to someone and you look like Bruno or Borat, they're going to be like, dude, get the fuck away from me. Are you trying to, like, get on SNL? Because, like, <laughs> I have no patience for this. But, you know, I went up to someone looking like a looking like a regular person in like a hoodie and a T-shirt and very casual. And then I unleashed this character, which right. they're not prepared for. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I did that. And I don't even remember what you asked me. But Lord knows I love talking about myself and my work. I, and I loved – you don't understand. I want to talk about Billy on the Street so much. You were saying the writing process. Now, here comes a strange compliment. Mm-hmm. When and I know people might be like, well, it's the editing. I'm like, it's not the editing because so many of these things are one shot and it ends with you walking away abruptly. I've done field pieces. So that's why I was like, how are you so fearless? Because I did field pieces for my old talk show and I found out about myself. I need this person to like me. Like I I couldn't ever feel like I was in, again, embarrassed, comedy embarrassed. Like I could never just like walk away. I'd have, yeah. I'd have to circle back and be like, that was great. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Like I'd yeah. get the release. Thank you for being a part of this. But right. you oh, yeah. this. Well, I never did that. We had people, producers who would deal with that. You know? And I, and you can tell because the pace of the show is so authentic. Mm-hmm. And here's the compliment is I'm watching the John Hamm episode and you're going around asking people if you if they want to have a three-way with you and John Hamm, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I can see people writing that. And I could see people writing or at least informing you on the things about John Hamm. Like there'd be some intel, right? Mm-hmm. He won an Emmy. It took him a while to get it. Uh, he plays Don Draper. His wife is January Jones. I know you knew this stuff. I knew that stuff too. Yeah. But what I noticed when you're doing it is there's no repetition someone who's not really natural at it or really gifted at that like off the cuff, off the hip thing mm-hmm. is going to repeat themselves. You're going to do the same area of joke each time, mm-hmm. but I'm watching and it's four different interviews with him. And there's like this restraint. You're waiting for an organic moment. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to say you don't get to touch Don Draper, but right. you sat on it until you needed it. Whereas I'm like, you think you could just have writers and be like, here's the areas, but like that in the moment sort of diamond mm-hmm. comedy mind that can be like, 
Now I say it took him nine times to get it because he because you can see John Hamm is feeling kind of cool. I'm going to take him down for fun and have him mug to the camera, and then I'm going to walk away. Like it, it, it was almost if you think about it, it would be impossible to do. So it was just channeling into your natural talent in a way that really just makes my jaw drop. I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. Oh, that's very nice of you. I mean, to be honest, it was like. I was kind of prepping for that job without knowing it since I was five years old. <laughs> ob- obsessively reading Entertainment Weekly and watching Entertainment Tonight. And this was pre, way pre-internet. So I yeah. didn't have access to like IMDB and Wikipedia. But like I was reading Variety since the time I was like 12 years old. I don't mm. even know why. I don't come from a show business family. You know, one day at the newspaper stand, when you used to go to like a bookstore or a, or a magazine store, I was like, what is variety? Like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And it cost like $12. And it, <laughs> my parents were like, who are you? You're going to spend $12 on this magazine? I was like, I need it. they don't only list the top 10 movies at the box office that week they listed the top 50 yes and i would literally go through all 50 movies and look at the per screen average i mean my my dad was an accountant and my mom worked for the phone company like they liked entertainment they loved shows and things so they indulged me but like i don't know where this came from was it to get on the screen or you just, you just love the culture of show business, not just how do I do this? uh, Well, there was that, that came eventually, but like just in terms of sucking up years of absorbing all these facts about the entertainment industry. And then with Billy on the street, it, I already had the information. It was all in my head. It was like 15 years, 20 years of of bullshit facts about pop culture, which I was able to turn into this show. And also, but I got to a point where I, where as an adult, I said, you know, maybe this stuff isn't that important. You've been so focused on it your whole life. And so much of the world seems focused on it. Maybe, maybe this is something that you can both celebrate and mock at the same time. Like, the, the urgency and your like irrational interest in this, in what movies people went to see, you know, right, right. and that's what Billy on the street was. It, it was, it, that's what I was like trying to point out. Yeah. Uh, and um, what a great example. I mean, I, this sounds like I'm buttering your bread, but I'm like, this is like graduation speech stuff. I mean that because here we are in show business. We can kind of do what we want we don't know if it'll be a success, but we can try to do. So you like had this glove or maybe you had this hand and then you made the glove that fit it. Like there wasn't necessarily a demand. People were like, could someone love and skewer and be funny, but also you did what was in you to do. Like if any, if any of us listening that are interested in creative endeavors Mm -hmm. to find the thing that's just written on their bones to do, and you loved show business and then, you can almost like graph it. It's like then people's, the, the nation's interest sort of got closer to yours and you were ready to go in the ring. You know what that's, I mean? That's, that's very true. Um, and, um, but, you know, I'd been doing it for years before we had a TV show. And mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, it did take a, a company like Funny or Die uh, who contacted me 
like in 2010, like literally 10 years ago, this August will be one night I got an email from Mike Farah who runs Funny or Die. And um, he basically wow. said, I, I like your YouTube videos if you ever want to come and work with us. And of course I did because uh, wow. I was like flat broke and all that, the whole normal situation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, we, but, and, and, you know, Will Ferrell and at, at the time Adam McKay were running Funny or Die and, you know, they're this very hot company with this SNL tradition, you know, they all met at SNL and, and all of that. But it did take, it did take kind of getting approved the approval of the more mainstream comedy world, which mm. Funny or Die is and was a part of, you know, to bring me into the room with TV executives and say, no, like, we're straight. And we think this gay guy, this loud, shameless gay guy with a gay sensibility is, is worthy. Of, that's right, that's right. Of getting a TV show. And I, for better or for worse, and I still think this is true and something that I tr I'm trying in my own small way to change is that it's great that we have that we're, we're putting more gay characters on things and that's great. And more gay actors can come out of the closet, although they're still kind of punished for that. Sometimes that's another different topic we can get on another day, but you know, we're still in most circumstances, not the gatekeepers and we're still waiting for a more successful straight, older white man who's established in comedy whether it's Lorne Michaels or to, to my friend Mike at Funny or Die who made my career or whoever's yeah. running Comedy Central to say, okay, we're ready for you now. That's right. You know? That and, can't be a good feeling. I mean... Well, I'm grateful for it. I love, I love Funny or Die. I mean, they like, you yeah, know, but, I adore them, you know, but, and it's not their fault. Like, this is just the way of the state of our industry. Um and why Ryan Murphy is such a game changer. Um, and I've gotten to work with him now and whenever I'm about to work with him again, whenever we can shoot things, but he's such a game changer because it's not just that he's putting gay characters on things or telling LGBT centric stories or hiring trans actors and actresses. It's that he is the gatekeeper. He, maybe he has to answer to Netflix now, but he has so much power. Like, he is Judd Apatow. He is Lorne Michaels. He is one of these guys, but there has never been a gay one. Right. You know? Right. And, and so I think what we have to do now is like, not that we don't want straight fans. Of course I do. I think the majority of Billy on the street fans are straight, to be honest. Um, gay, gay guys are like way over me, but, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I'm not edgy to them anymore. Uh, but, <laughs> but what we have to do now is like start, we need more Ryan Murphy's, you know, we need to. What did Ryan Murphy create? Where we're not relying on the old school gatekeepers, if that yeah. makes Forgive me for not knowing what shows Ryan Murphy. It sounds like he's a producer. Yes. Are you serious? I am serious. Yeah, but I, oh. I'm not, I'm not Billy Eichner. Eichner. I, wow. I don't necessarily know. That's amazing. The name. Um, so Ryan, Ryan's like a major showrunner, producer, writer, director. He did his first big hit was, well, back in the day, like Nip Tuck and then Glee, American Horror Story. He created American Crime Story, People versus O.J. Simpson. Okay. Um, and now he has a big deal with Netflix and he did The Politician and he has a ton of ton of stuff. Pose, 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of, not all LGBT-centric stuff, but a lot of it is. And he's wildly, wildly successful mm. and gets to call his own shots. And that is a real game changer, you know, for our industry, you know, that he has as much power as, you know, uh, some other big producer would have had back in the day, but they were never gay. And even if they were, maybe they were hiding it and not telling gay stories, not, not right. using their leverage to tell gay centric stories and hire gay actors and all of that. And so, to hold the door open. Yeah, exactly. For, for, for people like you that, that will be, hopefully that's what we're talking about, that you'll become the gatekeeper that can walk other people in. Right. Hopefully. I mean, yeah, I, that would be nice. I would like to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's not just an ego trip. If I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, this is, this is what you need to see. This is what change looks like is instead of what happened with you. And I know you're grateful for that to be like, we need more people that look like you that can let other people who look like lots of different things in yeah. instead of, you know, please, sir, can I have some more? Exactly. That's, that's precisely it. Um, and, um, because if you're relying on other people, even if those people are now very gay friendly and looking to do LGBT centric stories, that's lovely, but you know, they tend to do one and then they sort of check that box and they're like, see, I'm gay friendly. Um, now I'll move on to like doing what you usually do. That's Um, right. But, um, it's not necessarily a constant priority for them. Just and, one to keep um, people off your scent, basically. What was that? Some do you you book somebody or you hire somebody or you do one just to keep people off the scent of thinking that you're just maintaining the status quo. There's some of that. I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about it, but there's probably some of that. But you know, I think the next step after all of this, all of these talks of diversity and inclusion, the next step is to sort of take control, take our destiny into our own hands. Um, because a lot of the times you just end up sitting around and, you know, crossing your fingers that Lauren Michaels is going to call. And yeah. if, if he calls, that's amazing. But, yeah. but yeah. he might not call. You know, he probably won't call. <laughs> Only right. so many people can be on that show. And so, again, with Billy on the Street, I was taking matters into my own hands. I didn't know it would get this far. I had, I was just trying to tread water to like but make you, something. But that's what's beautiful about that story. And I can't, I'll never tire of stories like this. You were doing what you should and what was in you to do. Like, was it, what was not to be sappy, but what was in your heart to do yeah. and you did it. And that got recognized. That's what Conan told me. And I had him tell me the story on the podcast was he's like, there's all this commotion and he's like, and everybody's changing it up and playing different musical instruments. And he's like, all I did was I, I hit this little triangle and I just stood there hitting this triangle yeah. for 10 years, thinking that people would, after 10 years would go, I've been hearing that triangle. What is that triangle? And then they'd come yes. to you. And that's yes. what you did. You were like, yes. instead of guessing, like, what do they need? What kind of gay man or whatever style comedy do you mm-hmm. think the big wigs want? You were just doing what it is you should have been doing and were made to do and yeah. to have that pay out is really, really cool. Yes, it, it is. I mean, it's kind of a miracle, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm like I grateful mean, for it. I look, my story is different, but there's similarities in that like every step of the way Conan opened a door for me and walked mm-hmm. me in. 
Uh, Jed opened a door for me and walked me in. Mm -hmm. So we all have, we have that going. You're hoping that somebody will see, take notice and be like, I remember when I got a text, it was Amy Schumer that was like, Jed listened to your podcast. Like he just found out about your podcast. And I was like, Mm -hmm. there you go. That was, that was my Billy on the street. I was just doing a podcast and it got to this guy. Totally. And don't get me wrong because I know like, for a- any actor, comedian, writer, we're all, we all need a, a, you know, that hand to reach out, even if we're straight or gay or whatever. Right. Be- being gay and being open about it, especially 10, 20 years ago when I was like starting out, it, that just added another layer of challenge to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but, I, but, it, but it's hard for everyone, you know? Of course, That's- of course. And I, what I've, I take there is... Uh, that is that that is that New York thing again. Is like we weren't hopefully in a perfect sense. We, some of us are women, some of us are this, some of us are that, but we were all in the same foxhole together. And there's something very unifying. And some of the great friendships that I've made along the way were because we had this one very core thing in yes. common, which was trying to wrestle the the she beast of comedy to the ground and put a leash <laughs> yes, and put exactly. a leash on a dragon basically and that is yeah. so like that's why I love your story that that's a beautiful story oh, and aren't, you're you're working with Judd now and I, I don't know how much you can talk about it mm-hmm. but I was talking with him and he said that they did a table read are we allowed to talk about this at all for your movie uh, I don't know exactly what you're going to say I, I we can talk oh, about it in, in in broad strokes yeah. this is a very broad stroke very okay, very yeah. broad. He just said it destroyed. And I've been to a million table reads for a million movies. They don't destroy. And I was like, fucking A. I don't, this is the longest we've ever talked. I've always been a big admirer of yours. But I'm like, I was actually proud and excited. And and because you seem like a guy that's like, this is, this is it. I've been doing what I do. I've been shining in the way I can shine. A door is opening, but better than a door, a vacuum is opening. It's something that can take all of that energy and all of it. And I just can't wait to see what you do with the movie. I'm I'm thrilled for you. Thank you. That's very, very sweet. I, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. And um, what's I'm, it called? I'm just kidding. That? <laughs> I said, what's it called? You don't have to. I don't even know if it has a title. <laughs> It's called The Lion King. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no I am. Um, no, it's, I'm very excited about it. What I can say is that it is a rom-com about two gay guys who are adults. You know, uh, we see a lot of, strangely enough, you know, the younger generations are so much, much more LGBTQ friendly that, you know, every young adult or teen soap opera on Netflix has like gay sex scenes and yeah. making out. Like if they don't, it feels totally irrelevant. It feels- we show we're watching Pixar shorts with my daughter. Yes, and and I'm I, I this sounds I don't want it to sound condescending or uh, patronizing, but like the ones about uh, gay couples always mm-hmm. melt me because they're they're these incredible vehicles for stories about awakening yeah. and authenticity. And I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why the gay community often not always, but often produces such great art is because there's this drive in misunderstood marginalized groups mm-hmm. to be seen and to be understood and to be celebrated. And when yeah. I can see a Pixar made from a short made from a minority group, whether it be race or sexuality or whatever, or cars, 
or cars. I just cars is my number one. <laughs> one of our biggest marginalized groups—anthropomorphic <laughs> cars or whatever you call. Oh my god, you are funny, but you just know it's going to crack my heart open, like yeah. like poetry. I'm not even I'm not exaggerating. I know mm-hmm. it's going to get me there. So you're right, though that generation. It's not weird or it's not atypical. Right. But you were saying they're usually younger couples. It's, it's more. Yeah. Well, you have like Love, Simon, which moved me to tears, um, you know, just yeah. to see it exist and to be able to go to a movie theater and see it. But ultimately, that's a story. And, I, and again, it's wonderful. But it's a story about, a, you know, a teenager coming out. And we've seen a lot of that in the past handful of years. And we need those stories. And I believe the Pixar short they just made which people should check out because it's, it's beautiful. Called it's called out. Yeah. Right. Oh. Um, and again, the idea of like coming out and, but, but for some of us, you know, I'm 40 and uh, my friends are all in their like mid thirties to mid forties. We've been out a long time at this point. Yeah. And what we, what we don't see as much of, especially. Man, I've been for, out. <laughs> what's that? Sorry. I just wanted to say, man, I've been out. <laughs> I have, but but by the way, that's true. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I came out when I was nineteen, so I still find a coming out story heartwarming. And every yeah. generation is going to need their coming out stories, but we don't get many stories of what happens like ten, twenty years later when you're just sort of a messy, complicated, functional, right. very out, sexually yeah. active adult. I mean, after it got better. I mean, way after it got better, yeah, it got yeah, better, yeah. and you're like, "What?" Well, it got okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, the gay part got better, but wait, gay yes. guys are so fucked up. Why is yeah. that?" Oh, wait, and and, and, and exactly, exactly, dude. That is like calling, shining a light on a very subtle kind of prejudice or stereotype, which is like. Well, they'll be gay, and then they'll just be fabulous. I guess. I think yeah, they love exactly. dancing. Yes, because right? the media paints us in such monolithic ways, like, you know, we're the wacky, flamboyant, sex craze neighbor, except you don't see the sex. You just hear right. about it because right. no one can handle actually seeing it. Right. Um, especially <laughs> with men. Uh, oh, dude, I rented uh, Brokeback Mountain from B- Blockbuster. That's how long ago it was. And the sex scene faded out. It yes. faded to black. And I thought something was wrong. Yes. I mean, yeah. So there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole history of that, you know, or we're angels, you know, we're like these martyr type figures who die very young um, because of AIDS or gay bashing or some tragic thing. And I don't mean to diminish any of that. You're just saying it becomes mythic. It becomes like a telling those tragic stories because that is a part of our history and that that stuff still happens for sure. But man, we just don't have anything that's just funny and entertaining that also somehow authentically represents our lives, you know, right. as humans. Enough, because you you think about so many gay people in the media, and yet these stories don't really get told in a way where I I think it's realistically reflecting what it's like to be dating as a gay person, you know, like as an adult, you know, right. and so. Right. And to be honest, I feel this way about a lot of straight rom-coms and comedies, too. They're, they can be hilarious, but where are the adults? You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I just, um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the first movies I rewatched in quarantine was Broadcast News, right? I, um, I just watched it for the first time. I loved it. Oh, that's so funny. So 
I haven't seen it in many years and I rewatched it and I just, it just blew me away. Like me more too. now than it did when I watched it, like as me a teenager, too. because I understand the messiness of being an adult who wants to thrive in all these different ways. And not even knowing who she's going to go with. Cause you know, it's a romantic movie and you're like, is he going to, is she going to go with this one or that one? And, and you don't even know what you're rooting for. Yeah. There's no it, version of that movie these days. There's no like. Exactly. And, what I mean, straight yeah. or gay. I That's mean, right. And there certainly isn't a gay version, and there's barely a straight version. I mean, maybe certain streaming shows, um, you know, get a little more complicated and, and interesting and, and less cliched, but it's very rare. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this movie's about adults. And <laughs> like, it's, it's rare. It's like watching a movie about an endangered species. Like... Yeah. You no, know, and, and and they're and they're functional and s- extremely smart. Even the very kind of uh, sh- shallow William Hurt character ends up being more self-aware yes. than you thought he would about his own limitations and how to exploit, you know, what's what's good what what his strengths are even Yeah, yeah. And I just don't see movies about that. Like you said, barely about straight people, literally never about gay people. And so when I uh, Nick Stoller uh, who co-wrote the movie with me, who actually brought the idea of doing a gay rom-com to me. So I credit Nick a lot. Um, and, you know, he's straight and, and, but very, you know, was very, very open to what an authentic gay rom-com would look like and, and sound like. Mm. And I'd never written a movie before. So over the past three years, he's like really walked me through the process. Wow. Um, so, and then Judd came along to produce it. And mm. yeah, we were, literally like uh sadly about like three weeks away from shooting when everything shut down I'm sorry. Um, but yeah. hopefully you know everyone seems excited to get to it whenever we can but uh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's exciting and um ultimately i just also just really want to make a funny movie you know it's for sure so few movies are actually funny if you laugh out loud once or twice you're like oh that was funny yeah, I know. I, this sounds like I'm just uh, blowing smoke. K- Kumail put out Lovebirds, and Val and I watched it, and I think we laughed hard. Every six minutes, we had like yeah. a really big laugh. And I That's was like, a lot. It's a lot. It's funny. I, I've, I'm kind of calling bullshit on myself for assuming that you had a bigger hand than you did in Difficult People. I just assumed, which is sexist. You know and what I mean? People, people do, and... Um... You know, uh, I'm always quick to clarify people and, um, but, but, you know, again, I obviously, I mean, I love that show. I just want to make sure that people know that Julie, of course, and and wrote it. Um, and, but there clearly there was some overlap, broadly speaking with Billy on the street, you know, and it's a show. What I love about difficult people. I think we were a couple of years ahead of our time with that one. You know, Mm. it was. It came along, you know, Obama was still the president. We didn't know our final, what, what, what turned out to be our final season happened right after Trump uh, won. But we didn't quite know how bad it was going to get. I mean, we already hated them, but we didn't know exactly where we would be, especially yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, and we were kind of doing this a very, like, honest, some would say mean some others would just say honest type of comedy, but it wasn't chic in that particular moment. We were in a very, there was a very, it was like a very um, 
like Taylor Swift. Are you in my squad? Who's in my girl squad <laughs> type of moment? And I, I like Taylor Swift. I like her music a lot. But, you know, and that yeah. – it wasn't just her. That was the vibe culturally. It was we're all going to be – we're all, like, fake nice to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so – and now I think because of Trump, we've, we're all so angry and bitter and mean that – all those feelings have come out again. So difficult people, I think, almost makes more sense now uh, than oh, it is. Interesting. Then. And also, it was a very diverse and inclusive show. Extremely, I mean, it, it took the honesty of what it is to like be in a gay relationship and have gay sex, and in a very matter-of-fact, blunt way. Yeah, which was pretty radical for like seven years ago. You know, I agree. Um, I could see it yeah. going both ways because I, I noticed like remember Cards Against Humanity, the mm-hmm. card game. Yes, I feel like I played that after Trump won, and it was decidedly less fun. Like we didn't need a cheeky excuse to be like roasty, funny, like mean, ugly. Right, because we were like the world is that way. This is sort of why am I even saying this? It's not like I'm, I'm just trying to say that maybe difficult people was when we needed it, because when things are kind of saccharine, that's what drew me to it. And that's why I was like, wow. And I love Jimmy Fallon, but I was like, the more the world becomes like Jimmy Fallon, that sort of sensibility, the more I needed you and Julie being like, what am I, Jimmy Fallon over here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I yeah. needed some of that I mean, acidity. Look, you always need, the world is always a balance. You know, you need someone like Jimmy to hold up the big red balloon and yes. make people smile. And then you need characters like the ones on Difficult People to come over and pop the balloon. You know, That's right. Like, That's right. It's always a balance. And, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, you know? Of course. And they, and they create, create one another. Exactly. That's and right. so I encourage people because I still think there are a lot of people who don't know about difficult people or, or haven't watched it. And it's still on Hulu. It's buried. But if you're looking for something to watch and you're isolated in your house and you like pop culture and you really want to laugh. I yeah. mean, for, for certain types of people, it is a tonic, that show I've heard. Yeah. And, um, I encourage people to check it out. Well, it makes you feel a little bit less alone because I think we all have that voice in our head. I, I, you know, I am a positive person and I can certainly come off that way, but genuinely I, I have some enthusiasm for life, right. but take me to a gathering of red balloons. I want to sit in the back with you and Julie. That's, that's where <laughs> right. I want to be. And right. that's where we were. It doesn't matter how nice you are. Me, Berbiglia, Mulaney, talk to, you know, us talk yeah. to us in the back. We want to shit on the beautiful, perfect wedding maybe even more than you do because you guys have the valve going at all times. Like it's, yeah, such a, and, and it's, a break for it's us. our jobs not to like get on a very irritating soapbox about comedy. Um, Please. But, <laughs> I mean, although I guess I'm on a comedy podcast and that's yes, you. There you go. Um, but um, it's our job to point out hypocrisy, you know, and, and that's it. And we, it's very easy to, hate Trump and hate Pence and Lord knows I do. And, uh, you know, I'm very vocal about that as many of us are, but you know, there's a lot to make fun of and about ourselves also. And we may not be full on evil fascists like they are, but there's still so many hypocrisies and inner biases that we have. And 
you know, all of this like hunger to be seen and heard. <laughs> and yes, that's right. We're willing to do to each other to like step on each other. That's right. That's right. That go against our sort of better judgment, like the better side of ourselves. And you've got to talk about that too. Absolutely. I yeah. couldn't agree more. It's really easy to pile on about the evil. Yeah. It's really hard to look at the evil that is in everybody. So yeah. evil might be too strong of a word, but I'm, we're just talking about our shadow. We're talking exactly. about the part of us that is petty, the part of us that stomps when you could have just said a polite word and we need to call bullshit on ourselves. And that is, now we're really on a comedy podcast, but that is one of the services, not just of comedians, but of people that are like, can we please be real? Can we please open the windows? And that's what a good sarcastic quip can be. The yeah, reason- and that's why I was, um, oh, sorry, did I cut you off? No, I was just going to say the line on difficult people that I swear to God I loved mm -hmm. was that comedies have become half-hour dramas. Yeah, I was making Crashing at the time. I must have said it a thousand times. I was like, this is a half-hour drama. <laughs> like I was like, <laughs> I knew uh, whoever, if it was Julie, was talking about our show, but it made me feel seen. It made me laugh. It made me feel mildly roasted i love being roasted sure. but it was true and and that that is maybe first on the totem pole for me is that's it, so funny well really, julie well i'm julie will love hearing that i'm sure well, i gotta have her on we uh, I know think you we, do yeah we and, message um, back and forth she's the one to talk to about difficult people but yeah and, and it wasn't and to be honest i don't remember like talking about crashing specifically we were oh, in a please. moment of time when these half hour dramedies yeah it was girls crashing was existed because i loved girls that informed right. the tone that's why i went to judd with it i was like i want to make another type of girl show because that's what i like I, I don't know what it is about me but like i don't when i want to watch tv even though they're brilliant i don't put on the snappy perfect Harvard writing staff shows. Mm -hmm. and these are some of the best shows in the world. I always think of like Futurama or 30 Rock, just like pitch perfect. And a story and heart, but like mm -hmm. it, it, it sort of, the Gatling gun of it sort of freaks me out. So when I watch Girls, I was like, oh, I like this. The joke is how she drank her tea at the end of the scene. I like this. Right. <laughs> like, I think I'm an anxious person at times. And I'm like, I like my, my TV, like Mad Men, to just be like, let's be a little slow. Let's be a little bit slower. And yeah. I like that. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was a, that was a trend at, at, at that time. That's you right. Know, you That's saw right. that across a lot of shows. And it felt fresh. You know, it, it felt like a different kind of energy. It was something that in previous years you wouldn't have been able to sell to a broadcast network. Right, um, right. And, and so streaming made this kind of more sophisticated blend of comedy and drama, something that felt new That's um, right. and, and relevant. But there Julie and I were like, why aren't we laughing at That's any right. comedy on television? But that's what brought it up. So you're making your movie and you're going to make it. If you make, I don't care if it's gay or straight, but I was going to say a gay broadcast news. The the sexuality of it has nothing to do with it. If you make anything as close to as honest and real as uh, broadcast news with your voice, I mean, that's that's all I need to know. Well, thank. I don't know if it's going to be. I can't promise that. That one broadcast news is a pretty high bar. No, I know, but if that's what you're aiming for, like you well, could yeah, be aiming I mean, for something lower. I just want the movie to be about adults, and that doesn't mean. By the way, there's like a ton of 
sex in the movie and silly shit and like because that's me too i mean anyone who watches billy on the street knows i love like a silly joke and a silly prop and you know like yeah, yeah, all yeah. those things but but i think it, but there's a way to do that and balance it out with emotionally complex self-aware characters and yeah that's right it doesn't mean that we're not acting immature because we all act immature um, and we all do stupid shit and like hurt each other and all of that. But I just want it to be, I don't want it to be like cookie cutter, two dimensional characters. Um, And it's also important to me, like it was on Billy on the street. Again, that particular style of comedy may or may not be your, your thing. And that's perfectly fine. But what I'm proud of and what I think still feels fresh about it beyond it, it's funny or it's not funny, you know, I, I think it's funny, but, you know, is um, that there is a very confident, extremely confident, take no prisoners character, persona, whatever you want to call it, at the heart of that show and nobody else. And he's not the wacky neighbor. Mm. And it's as if the wacky gay neighbor took over. The that's show right. that's right fired everyone else and now it's like his way or no way and he's gonna storm away from you and not the other way around and, and right. that character is gonna call the shots and i know this sounds like you know i'm definitely at the risk of overanalyzing what is a silly show where i scream at people about meryl streep i do think underneath it there is some relevance to it. And I'm, you know, I'm proud of that. And it's that same type of, I don't play a Billy on the street type of persona in the movie. I play a more normal person, obviously, but um, I hope to carry that principle over into the movie. Cause I don't think we get enough of that. You know, I agree. I agree. I think that's fantastic. Uh, not to, I love Larry King. This feels a little Larry King to me, but I'm going to do it. Go. You had a Madonna themed bar mitzvah. Yes. I'm curious what you love about Madonna. Okay. So let me, let me go over this because people ask me about this all the time. And I think over the the years, this, the story has gotten a a bit exaggerated, but I I don't know if this is better or worse, but my, (laughs) the, the bar mitzvah that I had was not technically Madonna themed. I could not decide whether the theme should be Broadway which I was very into at the time and still am, or pop music, which I was very into the time and still am. I was very much like an MTV-obsessed kid. Um, So the theme became Broadway meets pop music. (laughs) Just to make things even gayer and also thematically just so unwieldy. Like those two things... That I, I love the, the inelegance, which isn't a yeah, word. It's so inelegant. inelegant. <laughs> so, okay, so if you want to go one step further, and um, one day I will do some sort of comedy special and actually show the footage from this because people will not recover from it. Um, <laughs> in, in order to, in order to sh- have a visual metaphor of this theme, um, let me remind you, this is 1991, by the way, you know, oh my so God. we had a DJ booth and then on one side of the DJ booth, there was like a almost life size sort of spray painted cutout of Madonna <laughs> in, in her like cone bra and garter belt and like 
bustier. I was a child. I was 13. Like, it was yes. just a party for children. But, of course, I was gay, so it wasn't sexual to me. It was just, like, interesting artistically. Right. And so, I mean, my relatives must have thought, well, they must have thought, well, he's gay. <laughs> but but to just, just to go one step further, Madonna was on one side of the DJ booth, and on the other side of the <laughs> DJ booth was a similarly life-sized, spray-painted cutout of the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, my God, Billy, you devil. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's truly a miracle I, that I wasn't bullied more as a child. I, <laughs> and I think it was only because I was tall. So, like, I was, I was very gay, but very tall. So I had really confused people. Like, you know. <laughs> because in theory, I should have been, like, very small and, like, you know, meek and someone yeah. that you could maybe physically beat up. And the only thing, and, and I got a little, there was, like, a school bully, I remember, who used to sometimes give me a hard time and, like, come over and, like, try to mess with me. But I was, like, taller than him. So there was only so much he could do. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only thing that saved me. I, so, yes. I relate to that very hard. I, I'm 6'6", six, six, you're 6'3", six, I believe. Yes. Oh, wow, you're 6'6"? Six, six? Yeah, I'm 6'6". Six, six. Wow. So, like, I, I, just, I, I, was, I was, obviously, I'm a, I'm a straight person, but I was wearing my Zach Morris impression yeah. And I, I had the gel. Nobody else was doing this. It was just me with like slicked and poofed, gelled hair, rock hard in place, and a rayon dress shirt and like Bermuda shorts. It was like I should have been. I, I'm giving thanks that I was so tall. That yeah. It was just like anybody could have beaten me up. Shorter people could have beaten me up. But it was a non-starter because it's hard to punch someone if you have to jump to get to their face. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It just looks exactly. stupid. <laughs> so no, totally. So it, it it kind of gave me permission to be like this very gay child. Yeah. Because, like literally, no one could reach me. Like... <laughs> Dude, I wore slap bracelets longer than the trend lasted, and I think it's because. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they were making fun of me. I couldn't hear up there. I think that's might have been what yeah, was exactly. happening. Yeah, um, exactly. So that was my bar mitzvah, yeah. Well, I love that, and I'm glad you cleared it up because that's hilarious and delightful and uh, <laughs> just beautiful. Um, we're talking about Judaism lightly. I know we already touched on pedophilia, so let's talk about it again. I'm kidding. Yeah, great. Um, we, I like to talk to people about how they understand the universe, um, whether it's religious or spiritual or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're in an interesting predicament. I just mean being alive, knowing we're alive, mm-hmm. knowing that we die. We're, we're a unique species and we're all trying to cope with that. Right. So without any agenda, I'm just wondering how do you frame it? If there is a religious anchor to it, that's, that's a place to start. If there isn't, what how do you what do you make of this you are conscious the we're on a planet floating in infinity and there's things like madonna's cone bra and phantom right. of the opera and a zoom podcast and right. and a pandemic and all of these things are happening do you tell yourself a story uh do you feel at home here do you think it's all random just no it's a judgment free zone i'm just curious what you make of the meaning of life 
Oh, that's it. Okay. I didn't know what the hell you were talking about. Yeah. But um that happens. Uh, <laughs> what is the meaning of life you're asking me? Yeah. Um what's going on here is all I'm saying. And, oh, and you, how oh, like do I think there's like a spiritual rhyme and reason for all of this? Maybe not a logic to it, but like is did something or it, what is at play here? Do you believe in a in a god or a, any sort of image that you hold in that sort of place? Perhaps well, Madonna and the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> right. Well, um, I don't know. I was going to say Kirstie Alley just blocked me on Twitter. So make of that what you will. <laughs> Is she religious? Um, well, she's a Scientologist. Um, famous. Oh, okay. um, but I, I don't think that's why she blocked me. She's also like a major Trump supporter. And I think that's why she blocked me. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so needless to say, I'm back to being Team Shelley Long after all. The- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to talk about like the meaning of life, but I will certainly talk about what happened to Shelley Long's film career. Hilarious. I don't know. You know. I'm not a very religious person. I think I mentioned it before, but in case you cut it out, I, um, I don't, I'm not a, you know, I was bar mitzvahed because of like, you know, cultural Culture. pressure yeah. that my family felt. And I swear to you, you can count on one hand the times I've been in a synagogue since then, you know, and it's, if I have, it's because of like a funeral or a wedding or a bar mitzvah. So, and I don't really follow anything. Um, and, you know, I'm just very pragmatic and practical about things, if that makes any sense. I, I tend to think um, all that I know is that life is extremely short. And, uh, you know, my parents both passed away. My mom passed away when she was, like, too young to pass away. And we don't have to get into the details about that. How but, old like, were you? What was that? I'm just curious how old you were. I was 20 when my okay. mom died. Mm. So, and she was 54. Um, and so my, I had an older dad. He died 10 years ago, right before Billy on the Street started as a TV show. He, he was 80 already. I don't, but, you know, so, but I think because of that, one thing I'm, I have a very tangible feeling of is that life is very short and, and unpredictable. And here we are in this pandemic where one day, I was like planning to go shoot like my dream movie. And the next day it was clear you wouldn't be shooting anything for the next year, at least if you're lucky, you know? And so, mm-hmm. and, and certainly other people going through things that are far, far, far worse than that, mm-hmm. um, which is not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things. So, but you know, things can change on a dime and life is very, very short. And because of that, I think I just have a sense of humor about everything and not that I don't have days that things upset me or I get mad or I'm like, things are unfair and not going my way today, you know, but I think I don't linger in that place very long, you know, because it's so precious and fleeting, right? Yeah. And like, I don't know. A lot of it probably does have to do with my parents again. And they were very, they were flawed like everyone, but like they were uh, funny people and I just, I'm always like, oh God, like my parents would not want me sitting here, like mm. being upset about them or about something that goes wrong and professionally That's- or whatever. And so I'm always like, yeah, this is all bullshit. Like we're all going to die. Some of us are going to die tomorrow. Some of us are going to live till 110 and just kind of enjoy yourself. And because this is all kind of a joke. 
Like, you know, it, it just kind of is. I mean, you can take, you should take your life seriously. I'm not saying to be an asshole uh, or to be overly, you know, indulgent or whatever. But, you know, I don't know. I just kind of think it's all funny. It is funny. You know, the way that I would phrase what you're saying. I don't mean to say, let me just clarify. I don't mean funny like disease is funny or, you know, oh, it's funny when someone doesn't cast me because I'm gay or racism is hilarious. Clearly not. I just mean on a more profound level, there is a just this bizarre absurdity to all of this and that as serious and as horrifying as things can get, you kind of need to keep that in the back of your head too, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. You're in very familiar territory. So please don't worry that you're sounding callous. We talk this way almost every week. What I was going to say was it's, I've never listened to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We would say the cosmic joke. This is why Buddha is smiling. Is there something sort of like, it's not a joke. My daughter's name is Leela. Leela means the dance or the play of the universe. And it's a reminder, not in a existential or dread-filled way, to not take anything too seriously. Because look, it's sort of funny that anything is happening at all. So to get too caught up in the minutia of this, like, oh, today I can't go to the beach or whatever. I mean, zoom out is what we say. You're on a rock in infinity. Like, Correct. Everything yeah. is a little bit cosmically funny. Obviously, let's take it seriously. Obviously, let's love each other. Let's have compassion. Let's be good. As, as Jack Kornfield said on this podcast, what would love have me do today is a great question to ask every morning. Poetry, mm-hmm. art, love, connection, authenticity, and enlightenment, these are all important and real things that we are advocates for suffering, mm-hmm. pain, loss, isolation, mm-hmm. desperation, and depression. These are, these are things that we can agree to fight against. And at its fundamental core, it's kind of a fart joke. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, because we're all working so hard and, and fighting, fighting, fighting politically, pr- literally fighting in the street, uh, you know, and, you know, um, Yesterday, I don't know when this will be posted, as they say in the business, when this will stream. <laughs> but um, yesterday, Larry Kramer died, right? Who is, um, you know, some would say like the most important gay activist of all time, uh, who led the charge to make sure that the government under Reagan and a very homophobic administration in the 80s, you know, started to do research about AIDS and develop medicines when gay men were dying in the streets and no one cared for years until Larry Kramer and his colleagues spoke up in New York City. So Larry died yesterday and, you know, there's so much fighting and you have to fight like you you do. And it's our responsibility to fight, 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 you know, literally and figuratively uh, for the things that are right. But... Like you said, you also have to take a bird's eye view of it all, you know, because these are our lives at the same time. And so it's important that, you know, we kind of, even in the fight, keep a sense of humor about ourselves, which is a complicated balance. And people might hear that and say, like, well, you sound very privileged. And, And I don't mean it that way, because the fights are important. 
and very serious and we need to commit to them and we need to watch out for each other. Um, but yeah, you know, if it bogs you down forever, then your life passes by and that sounds very depressing. I mean, I, you, what you're saying, I'm going to say is, is very deep and uh, beautiful and, and spiritual. And I, people have probably heard me say this before, but I'll keep it brief. Uh, my homeboy Ramdas had a, a board called the Save a Foundation, where they tackled some of the biggest, craziest, uh, you know, things that are killing people: starvation, uh, blindness, disease, all these things. And whenever they had a board meeting to talk about these, very undoubtedly, every ten out of ten humans agree these are serious issues. They in these private meetings, they would wear Groucho Marx glasses oh, if, wow. they, if they had to bring up something very, very heavy. It wasn't to make them feel better. It was so that they didn't forget to not take anything, even everything that is so serious, too seriously, so that it encumbers and bogs down and weighs down, basically to use hippie language, your frequency. You want to stay free while you're fighting. You want to keep Trump and all the nasty people in your heart while you're fighting. You want to stay open and flowing even in the middle of a brawl and a, 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 a bloody, angry, there's a way to do that in, in a connected and light way. Yeah, and it's a survival skill, really. That's just like, that's a way to like survive, you know? It's a way to like get over the serious shit is to you, like laugh about everything. That too, that too. You know, so, some people don't have that philosophy, you know? Some people just don't, but that's for me, that's a healthy way to to live. I agree. I Now that said, I would literally murder someone to win an Emmy. Literal murder. <laughs> Actual homicide. So make of that what you will. <laughs> I, I just, wonder if in all of this Val and I we watched Phantom Thread again. Oh, um, love. Love. I love Phantom Thread. And there's something about what you love, what is so close to your heart, show business and and the the culture of it. I I find myself missing that in the pandemic because is there anything the more exaggerated, grandiose use of our freedom to be with each other than like dressing up and award ceremonies and red carpets and movie premieres? It's like the most exaggerated, like there is no pandemic activity. It's so frivolous. Yeah, it's so frivolous, but it's so human and beautiful in that way. It is so light and trite. And on Billy on the Street, the woman that you sort of scared, she goes, "Is this what society's becoming?" And I was like, "Yes, that." And that's funny. And that's what you're going for—that sort of skewering of yourself. Mm -hmm. And as we're inside, and like Val and I you know, we've been invited to things in the past and we haven't gone all the time. We don't always go. Now we would love to go to a right. Globes party. Right. And just see people, not even famous people, just be in a room filled with well-dressed, good-smelling people eating hors d'oeuvres. That sounds so fun right well, now. Well, that's why I get very dressed up to go to Trader Joe's. <laughs> and, you know, I, I act like there's a valet. And, um, <laughs> there is a cart valet. My shopping cart is my date, my plus one. <laughs> um, I keep saying, you wait here, I'm going to go get us drinks. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. I do. Well, but you know what? I wonder, because I keep thinking about this, 
Everyone's like, we can't go back to normal. It wasn't normal. There were horrible things about the world and we shouldn't just go back to them. Now that is of course true, you know, and, but, but at the same time, I think we just will, <laughs> like, <laughs> if, if you, you know, if you're not a guy who goes to parties, maybe you'll go to one party just to prove that you can now. Yeah. And I think three weeks later, all the homebodies are going to be like, yeah, we're going to stay in. Yeah. It's just, you know, that's like who we are. I'm realizing that is sort of who I am. I am missing parties, but, uh, I, I said, Pat Oswald did the show not that long ago. And I told him, like, remember, it's like breaking a fast. Like, don't right. go to a party. Go to lunch with two friends. Like, right. please ease back into this. Yeah. I, I went to a house that was very strictly quarantining. We're very strictly quarantining. We're taking it really serious. They're taking it really serious. And we went and there was one person I didn't know. I've told this story already. But they started talking to me and I was like, I can't do this yet. I can't right. like, like someone just kind of fast talking at you yeah. and I don't know what's important and what's not important. And I'm like, I can't wait to be able to go out and not go out. That's what I'm looking forward to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. Watching the way people kind of ease back into things because things are starting to open up again um, for better or worse. And uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting because you, you so wanted to go back to normal, but there's always going to be that voice in your head. Like did that person just tell me a very funny anecdote and also give me a fatal disease? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, and so there's that. I mean, I, God love him. A comedian invited me uh, to go out very careful group masks and distancing. And I said to Val, I was just like, you can I, say Gilbert Gottfried. Pete. It was Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> you can name drop him and i was like at this point we could be wrong I, I i tend to think we're not but i was like there are certain things that are worth the risk and i don't know if a casual hang is on the list right now you yeah. said a year I, I i don't read the news because it freaks me out too much i check in every once in a while uh-huh uh, you think it's going to be a year before you're shooting your movie? There's no, there's no official word on whether it's a year. That's just me. I mean, I'm just, I rather be realistic and and just in my head know that it might get pushed that far. And if I'm yeah. surprised and it happens earlier, then great. But you know, when you look at how now all the movies that were supposed to come out this year are coming out next year, so all the release dates are taken anyway. I just, I see it all probably pushing to next year but um but i I, here's why i ask i have tour dates and people occasionally will tweet at me and they'll be like i can't wait to see you here and it'll be like the end of june and i'm like do we think we're doing this like i really don't know i'm like i have to think we're not doing that i think end of june sounds early for like a theater full of people i that it's got to be like Remember Homer's car on The Simpsons? Everybody had a bubble on the episode. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, is that um, what we're gonna do? I don't know. Like a drive-in. You could a drive-in comedy show could actually work. I mean, if they, they can honk when they're laughing. <laughs> that's right. You won't be able to hear them. That's so, that's actually hilarious. Um, that's really funny. Um, well, let's close yeah. out. That that's too heavy for this show anyway. This, people do not come here to get their news. Uh, Billy, what is the the time in your life that you laughed the hardest? Maybe you were a kid. Maybe it was recently. It doesn't matter. Maybe somebody fell. 
Maybe somebody farted. Mm-hmm. If you were laughing so hard it hurts, can you think of a time and what happened? Oh, man. I mean, truthfully, it's probably like some inside joke with my friends about sure. one of my other friends. I have a lot of old friends, um, and we're still very close. And so, oh, that's you sweet. know, it's probably something about one of us that, that wouldn't the average person listening would not get unless you literally are my friend Diane or my friend Camilla. Shout out to Diane and Camilla. Edit that out. Um, but um, in terms of pop culture, I was funny. You know, that's so interesting. I was thinking about that the other day, maybe in relation to the the, the movie that I'm, I'm writing. But again, like what movies have really, really made me laugh? And of course, there were things when I was younger, like a child. I don't know if they would still make me laugh as much. But in terms of like the last 15, 20 years, I would say, and we've already talked about it, strangely enough, but, and I guess it's a cliche to a certain extent, but I laughed so hard at Borat in the theater. Yeah. I still remember I was like sweating on my, it, it was like I had run a marathon. I was laughing yeah. so hard. Yeah. And, yeah. And my friend, I went, I remember vividly, I went with my friend Jamie and we were just, crying sweating like laughing so hard that you're sweating is very (laughs) Um, and it's funny i haven't i don't know if i've watched borat since like because you can't you know the next time is just that you want it in the theater and you want it you want to not know what's coming yes it's so much about the surprise factor um and and also other than Borad, Bridesmaids actually really, yeah. really, really, really made me laugh. Um, and you know what's funny about both of those examples is one is a dick joke and one is a poop joke. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't, like you and I need to do well, or, or at least I do, to remember that like, yeah, there's perfectly crafted little word haikus that can get us in a very great way. Yeah. But sometimes it's just Melissa McCarthy shitting in a sink. And sometimes it's just like a very oddly shaped man being chased by a guy with a huge black, oh, yeah, blackout it, dick. It's it's that wrestling match in Borat. It's yeah, like that's it. you know, I mean, I remember laughing so hard at that. I thought I literally thought I was going to die. Yeah, um, you know what's and, funny is Larry Charles, who directed it. That's yeah. his answer to this question. His answer to the hardest time he laughed mm-hmm. was, I think, at the premiere of Borat. Imagine having made that and showing it for the first time and hearing those laughs, like no buzz about it. Nobody knows what it is. And you get to watch that cash check, get cashed. I mean, amazing. Okay. I love Larry Charles, but that's a vile answer to say your own movie. Your (laughs) premiere is the funniest thing you've ever seen. What if I was like, well, I did an episode of new girl, which to Uh. me, um, <laughs> no, no. So it's and I, I recently caught some of Brides. Bridesmaids is always on TV, um, and uh, I caught some of it recently. And to me, even more than the actual shitting in the sink, which is very funny, but it's it's Kristen Wiig getting fed the almond or whatever. Yeah, it is, yeah. that her struggle in that scene is yep. just you can feel it. Like that's right. She's really, really brilliant in that movie. I really think her whole performance in that movie was like Oscar worthy because she does all these heightened, hilarious things, but she's very much a real person. It's like very three dimensional and she's, it's just incredible. Completely agree. That be, that was a coronavirus meme that I saw of her eating the almond. And uh, it's like yes. people going to 
no mask rallies three weeks later. Like, no, I feel fine. <laughs> Try, trying so to be true. like, I swear everything's good. I was like, that is too good. That's funny. Um, Billy, I feel good. Do we feel like we covered everything that you'd like to cover? Yeah, I feel good. I'm sorry if I wasn't, this might be the least funny I've ever been. And so I apologize. So funny. I was like, wow, this was one of our funnier episodes. Oh, really? Oh, that doesn't say much for you. No, we are a half hour drama. That's for sure. (laughs) This show, like, you know, I always used to hear these stories that Conan, maybe it was from Conan, I don't know, but it was like, he'd book guests, like he'd have a guest on that was like a civil war historian. Mm -hmm. And he would just be so excited because he's a big history guy. And then the next I had have to talk to a reality star and and you could just feel the lag. And I was like, what this show is, is just me booking my history people. So it's not necessarily like juiced as maybe it was when we started. Mm-hmm. It's just like my sweet, safe pocket of like, I want to talk to Billy. So we don't have to be all, we don't have to juggle while we do it. I'm just glad right. we got to go. Well, if you're happy, I'm happy. I had a very pleasant experience. Good. And thank Good you job. for, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, buddy. Um, go see your movie in three years. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> is on Netflix now and, uh, and the Lion King, which I have, forgive me. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. It was a wonderful experience. And sure. uh, it really was. Um, We've watched the original. Well, that's I, because Leela, my daughter. So we we're watching that. I, and it's funny, if you watch the original, which I'm sure you did. Of course. It is before every character had to be someone we knew. Right. Like the remake is everyone is somebody that you know. And yeah. back then you're like, who does the voice of that guy? And it's just like, it was a stage actor or a Broadway actor yeah. or something like that. And don't get me wrong, they're incredible and they are famous and they are special and, it's, and mm-hmm. they do an amazing job. But I was like, wow, they stacked the deck like crazy. I also, here, here's, here's your clickbait. I didn't know it was Nathan Lane. I thought it was Billy Crystal the first time I rewatched it. Okay, well, maybe familiarize yourself with homosexuality. Uh, and, and the few gay actors who got opportunities in the 90s. There we go. Um, no, it, 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 it Watch was Watch Billy's then. skewer homophobe host, yes. weirdo Pete Holmes. Exactly. Q- I just... QAnon member Pete Holmes. <laughs> um, there, I, I no, remember the bus. One of the honestly, one of, we can end on a on a nice note. But one of the best parts of the Lion King experience for me, and everyone should start with the original because it's it's the original. Um, I had a lovely, very magical time making the remake, but the original is the original. Um, and Nathan, who did the voice of Timon originally, and and I did it in the remake. He reached out to me. We had so much correspondence while I was making Lion King, and he was so supportive. And I grew up going to Nathan Lane shows on Broadway. Wow. Even before the majority of the world knew who he was, he was a big theater star before the Birdcage and the Lion King and all those things. Um, And he is just such a class act and always so hilarious. And um I just adore him. And you hear a lot of stories about actors being like jealous and mean and this one and that one. A lot of times it's not true. And, and he was, he's just incredible as a person and as an actor. And 
that was honestly one of the most thrilling parts of it for me. That's awesome. So he really handed over the mantle with, with grace. I, well, I wouldn't say he handed over the mantle. <laughs> <laughs> alive and thriving and on the latest season of whatever. No, nope, he's done. Rental, he's done. You get all his jobs now. No, I, I temporarily, I borrowed it. I borrowed it from Nathan. Yeah, no, obviously Nathan Lane is a legend. I didn't mean it that way, but I mean, he is letting you into that. I mean, he could have been, like you're saying, stories of people in Hollywood, he could have been like, I'm not talking to him. Yeah, he, you know he, I, mean? well, he, I, I barely know the guy. I met him a few times. Like, there was no reason for him to reach out or anything. Um, and he did. And we exchanged multiple emails. He went to see it opening weekend. And then literally apropos of nothing, because he had already like given me his blessing to do it and wished me luck. Um, and then he went to see it like opening day. And I got like a five paragraph email from him. Mm. with all these compliments about my performance it was literally out of nowhere and i literally i I read it to my friends i was at dinner with them and like started like tearing up because i saw nathan lane on broadway when i was 12 and 13 right around the time of my broadway meets pop music wow Uh, and um it was just wild and so he's the greatest and that's um always worth talking about yeah that's great i can't believe i thought it was billy crystal only for a second (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in my defense we were watching monsters inc and uh yeah. we were jumping back and forth it was a confusing time well who who doesn't want to be the, the gay billy crystal <laughs> <laughs> and you're worried this episode's not funny enough oh there you go thank you so much is there anything else you want to plug I'm good. Thanks so much, Pete. I appreciate it. Yeah, we end with the guests saying the catchphrase, which is keep it crispy. You can say it. it. Was there a voice for your character in Lion King? You can say it however you want. It was just my voice. Yeah, then we'll have it both ways. Okay, great. Keep it crispy. There it is, baby. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right, thanks, Pete. Stay safe, stay healthy. Good to see you, man. So crispy, my ice game make you haters wanna get mad.